Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative and online community that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we're sharing a discussion with Sherry Brady of the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions, Anna Takolo of the Alliance for Education Solutions, and Junius Williams, who serves as Senior Advisor to the Collective Impact Forum. Sherry, Anna, and Junius discuss how essential it is to bring folks from different generations into collaborative work, and how we can better recognize, understand, and work through cross-generational challenges to reach shared goals. This discussion was originally hosted on September 16th, 2020, as part of the Champions for Change 2020 virtual workshop. My name is Sherry Brady. I am the Director of Strategic Partnerships for the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. So the idea of this session really grew out of a conversation that we were having about organizing and systems change work that is sort of happening in response to the moment that we're in and really exploring some issues around thinking about how movement building happened, um, is happening now, how movement building happened in the 60s during sort of the the civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s, and other kind of education and reforms that were happening sort of throughout, throughout time, and thinking about what kinds of things are different, how you sort of work across generations that have different, um, or having different sort of using different tactics and tools in in the work that they're doing, whether it's, you know, folks who were sort of involved early on in the civil rights movement or later in the civil rights movement that were using sort of different tactics to sort of what's happening now and thinking about what that looks like in this world that's gone to to a lot of digital space as well. So we really thought it would be great to have a a cross-generation conversation that really talked about some of the things we want to think about in collaborative work that we want to think about and what's possibly missing as we think about this moment in organizing in time. So we came together with um, my dear colleague, Junice Williams, who I'm going to have introduced, and Anna, who I know through um, my org program's work with the Opportunity Youth Forum. And so we're, we're hoping that you all will engage with us as well and, and talk to us about what's, what your thoughts are around these issues. So again, Junice and Anna, thank you for joining. If you both would introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about yourselves. Junice, you want to start? Sure. And thank you, Sherry. I, I would start introducing myself to, by saying that uh, I'm a child of the 60s. I'm late boomer uh, generation, but very much influenced by the migration of my parents from Arkansas to Michigan to escape racism in the uh, post-World War II period after my father came back from uh, overseas and decided he could no longer tolerate Uh, the treatment he was receiving in Arkansas. And that really kind of colored the way that my siblings and I were raised in in Battle Creek, Michigan, and around um, kind of the social justice being a core part of uh, what you were supposed to be uh, doing uh, with your life in terms of advancing that. Um, And uh, it very much kind of shaped and influenced uh, the work that I've done through, throughout my career. Um, and uh, I, I guess the, the other 
point I would make uh, by way of introduction is I'm very much interested in doing this and having this conversation. And obviously it needs to be much broader uh, than Anna and I, because of how um, critical this issue of cross-generational uh, relations is to the success, and especially at the current time, given uh, what's going on and what uh, both the dangers and the opportunities are um, if we uh, fail to figure out how to work together effectively to capture some of the opportunities in the moment. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Junius. Uh, no. Yes, thank you for that, Junius. And hello, everyone. Um, my name is Ana Falcolo, and I currently serve as the Youth Program Coordinator and Street Team Supervisor at the Alliance for Education Solutions, which is a nonprofit that is based in Sacramento, California. And our mission is to improve the life chances of vulnerable youth by empowering their voice and fostering cross-cultural and cross-generational relationships to better the life chances of our youth. And we collaborate with young people to find the solutions that they need um, in order to face the challenges that they face in school and in the communities that we serve in. Um, I met Sherry through our Opportunity Youth United um, movement that is a movement um, throughout the nation that focuses on empowering Opportunity Youth to be able to foster cross-cultural and cross-generational relationships. Um, and pretty much our organizational culture and philosophy um, is pretty much rooted in mutual respect, empathy, caring, and accountability, and is reflected in the way that we work on and on behalf of youth. I am a product of the work that we do. I'm only 24 years old, and um, I'm a first-generation college graduate from California State University, Chico. I have worked with this organization since I was about 18 years old, and I have grown with this organization um, up until the point where I stand today. Um, and I know that cross-generational relationships happens truly um, in the midst of the work that we are trying to do. And I know that it has such an impactful presence in movement building. And that's why I'm excited to have this conversation today, similar to, to Junius. Um, and so thank you for having me and I can't wait to get into this conversation. Great, thank you, welcome both. And I just wanna pick up on a point that Junius made that yes, we can only speak, the three of us can only speak to really our experiences. We're not speaking for all of the folks in, in our generations that we recommend, but we, that's why we also wanna bring folks in, but we wanna speak from our experience and, uh, and share sort of the thoughts that are on our minds around this. So my first question is, what do you think, um, can you share a little bit about what you think collaborative change work means, means for us and how do we bring in, and in, in, in how do we bring sort of generational voices into this conversation? I can go ahead and start us off, um, if you don't mind, Junius. So for me, um, doing collective impact work successfully um, is based on what we've practiced, includes everything that is grounded in the philanthropic function of what we do at AES. Um, if you all see my shirt here, it, it has our logo on there, and there's also a heart. We say a lot in our organization that it's not about the hard work, it's about the hard work. And understanding that um, collective impact has a lot of different layers to it. 
It involves solving major issues with multiple sectors at the table. And first being able to, um, well, actually before being able to solve those major issues, we know that you must understand who is at the table. Because sometimes when you have different sectors at the table, differences can collide. Um, when we talk a lot about the cross-generational aspect of collective impact, sometimes um, generations that have grown to being different, too different at the table, can sometimes have impede on the, the goals of the collective impact um, goals. And so what we believe in our organization is that there is a true power in relationships and that change happens at the speed of trust. So we know that in order to um, have a successful collective impact effort, we must understand and emphasize the relationship building aspect of, of what we are trying to accomplish, whether it's education equity, whether it's race relations in our communities that we serve, um, no matter what training or meeting that we host, we know that relationship building is our very first effort in trying to accomplish that. I guess I would start by, by saying that ideally collaboration should be a way of accomplishing more than any single individual or organization uh, is able uh, uh, to accomplish singly, um, and that for that reason, it's very attractive. Um, but it's also, uh, I think, a challenge because it is a challenge in terms of compromise. Um, and I think that that is especially the case when you look at it through a lens of, of age and uh, uh, intergenerational sort of dimensions of that, that um, collective impact with all of its potential to benefit is also a cauldron for compromise. And sometimes not only compromise with respect to the issues, but compromise with respect to one's values. And it makes it, I think, for a lot of people, very difficult uh, uh, work to do where you're trying to balance, you know, at least some sort of incremental gain with what you perceive that you're giving up by virtue of trying to, to work with people. Um, I would make one other point, and I'm glad uh, Anna talked about the work that, that they're doing. Um, but one of the things that I've observed is that for so many of the collective impact initiatives that are going on, where it's not directly related to an issue of youth or young people, you don't find youth and young people at the table. I mean, think about your own collective uh, impact initiative and look at the leadership table. What's a median age there? What's the youngest person versus the older person? It reflects the same thing that's going on in the broader society that is really problematic. And I'm sorry, we're, the presidential candidates who were leading were all over 70. Boy, talk about a, a disconnect. And let me just say this bluntly. My generation has done a poor job of getting the hell out of the way. We've overstayed our role in leadership and we've done it to the detriment of the causes because all of us know kind of what happens 
uh, to us over time, or at least those of us who are older do. You mellow in a way uh, around issues and aggression that probably uh, isn't good. So I look at collective impact, and I guess part of the challenge of it is how do we need to kind of reframe in the same way that uh, we've talked about sectors, and maybe it isn't sectors, maybe it's more stakeholders, representation and recognizing that younger generations um, need to be represented at those tables that we're creating in a way that we're not because we're so focused on sectors and certainly that's a, a important but there are also these basic differences that we don't seem to be addressing and i think far too many of us are comfortable in the absence of, of young people at the table. And I'm gonna, and just through my son, there's so much shit I don't know uh, because I just had, I never had student debt. I graduated from four years of undergrad and three years of, of law school and a year of grad school with zero debt. That's very unlike even in my own family with my son. It's hard for me to relate to somebody looking at $200,000 debt the way that I understand that is talking to people with that experience. And if they ain't at the table, then we lose that. So that's what one of my concerns is that we somehow missed it in the way that we construct collective impact initiatives that we sort of largely ignore the intergenerational dimension of who stakeholders are. Thank you, Jenny Sinara. So to follow up a little on a couple of things that were raised um, and some interesting comments are coming through the chat. But one is this idea of how do you build this relationship? And I think the, the idea of wanting to be respectful for elders who are at the table and understanding and valuing what elders bring to the table and Junius and sort of bringing in your point of um, not necessarily wanting to necessarily put people out to pasture and not, and not respect what they do. So someone raised the idea of sort of the question around where's the balance of the respect for the wisdom that the elders bring to the table as well as sort of bringing in that new leadership. And I think it goes to um, questions that we don't that we should talk about more and don't talk a lot about when we talk about this work sometimes is the question around power who has it um, who needs to share it how do we build it in others so sort of what are some some ways that we can think about sort of both having all these voices at the table respecting sort of the wisdom and leadership that that the elders bring to the table while still making space for bringing some of those new voices and trying to develop that what I like to call bench strength right and and building, um, building the young folks who are actually doing a lot of this work or, or having different perspectives on the problems. And I agree, I do a lot of work with youth, with OI, um, with our program. So we always have youth at the table, but when I go into other spaces, that's not always the case, even though they are impacted by a lot of the issues we're talking about. So how do you balance that? I just think it's making the same sort of commitment that we've made around any of a number of other issues, um, uh, of composition of who's at the table. To me, it's not rocket science. It has to do with will uh, and commitment to just say uh, we don't have a fully representative table if we're not looking at the generational or age dimension of the composition uh, of our groups. And um, But I, I just think there's a resistance. And with respect to you know, I, I come from a tradition that honors uh, elders, but it doesn't make us right. It, it just makes us, uh, you know, steeped in experience perhaps more than, than young people. So, you know, I was taught and 
to respect my elders, uh, but I was also taught to, to seek truth and to seek justice. And if they conflict, uh, those uh, values and principles uh, tend to, to dominate for me. So I just think it has to do with will and commitment and that we've kind of not done it for so long. It just becomes easy with all of the other interests we're trying to balance and composition and, and voice and, and listening that sometimes young people just get dropped off, uh, dropped off of the, the equation or the composition matrix. Uh, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so I was just gonna say that just going off of what Junius had said, it's not rocket science, this work that we're doing. And a lot of times when it comes to cross-generational relationships in terms of um, doing this collaborative change work, the challenges come in the way that we communicate with each other and knowing that we're from two completely different um, generations can sometimes, like I said, um, get in the way of the shared goals that we have. Um, but understanding how to connect with people um, doesn't always come easy for everyone. That was my case for a little bit of my, my activism work and organizing. Um, but understanding that connecting and building relationships and strengthening um, the youth life chances and life skills all comes into all of that when discussing challenges in collaborative work. So one of the things that's come up in the questions and the comments is sort of the role of sort of cultural norms in this. I know in some cultures it's, it's verboten to sort of challenge elders at the table. Um, in, in others uh, might not be as, as um, the same. So I don't know if these are issues, and I would ask you as the, as the younger of the, of the folks at this, at the, on this conversation, you know, has that come up in the work that you're doing and thinking about sort of what are the cultural norms and frameworks around, you know, trying to have those kind of dialogues with elders, if it's, um, and how do you sort of overcome that? Or have you guys done trainings around it? Or how, how do you work through some of that? Yes, so I'm Tongan, and um, in our culture, it is not the norm for women to have any type of leadership role. And so when it came to activism and organizing, it took me a while to, um, to talk to my elders in a way where I felt comfortable to do so. Um, and what helped for us and what helped for me personally was the fact that we would do training where the dynamic of our trainings would be play, connect, and teach. And whatever we would do, whether it was training, whether it was programming, we would always play first because we know that that's the way to connect with each other first um, by letting those guards down, breaking barriers with each other. Um, then connect with each other and have those difficult conversations. And once that was done, then we'd be able to teach with each other and teach whatever it is that the shared common goals were. Um, but I know that method of going about um, certain trainings, programs was what worked best for me. Another issue that came up, um, Junius, did you have anything to add to that? I wanted to sort of get- Well, uh, I would just quickly add that putting together a collective impact initiative creates a, a unique opportunity to address the issue through the creation of the new culture that you need to build at the table. And it's an opportunity for people to kind of surface issues of cultural norms, uh, different cultural 
uh, patterns and behaviors of different groups and reach some common understanding. So you're kind of creating a new culture and explaining to people that this is maybe different than what their, their culture of origin might do, but that if we're going to work on these complex problems, we need to establish a culture that helps us do that. And it's not being disrespectful of anybody's culture of origin. It's just looking at what is the culture that we need to establish between those of us who are going to work together in order to get the work and the outcomes accomplished that we've set out for ourselves. So I think it's a unique crucible in which to create a culture that's really respectful of everyone and people understand that and don't take offense in terms of being challenged uh, be, uh, by a younger person or something because this is uh, the environment that we've created and it's okay in this environment where at home with mom or with uncle or aunt, it might not be, but here it is okay. Thank you. Um, boy, lots of questions that are coming in and, and in my mind, but um, one thing that has come up a bit is sort of Thinking about in this right now, a lot of the work that we're doing is more digital is, um, you know, we're communicating in very different ways. So how do we sort of bridge a gap around communicating um, between generations in this sort of more digital digital way that might not be comfortable for all? Um, and how do you help build sort of and create sort of the trust that we've been talking about here, building this trust and building this respect and understanding across generations in a way um, that when you can't be in person, which sometimes I think being in person, being over food, being over those kinds of things helps build some of that. How do you do it virtually or digitally? Yeah, so for us, um, we've utilized a lot of TikTok. <laughs> um, we, we've noticed that social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, TikTok has helped us tremendously in spreading the word that of what whatever we're doing. Um, and a lot of what we do on Zoom is interactive. So we utilize a lot of Mentimeter. So I appreciated the Mentimeter this morning. We utilize the polls. We utilize um, all the different things on our web that we can use to keep people engaged, keep young folks engaged, just because we know that uh, when folks are engaged and they're talking and they're participating in the conversations that we're having, um, the conversations just flow a lot easier. Um, and also staying consistent with that, knowing when we're reaching out to folks that we're staying consistent and on top of that and just showing up and speaking out. No, I think that uh, the, the tech is so interesting around this intergenerational issue because what should happen is old folks like me should step up and say, I don't, I know little or nothing about it. I'm surviving on a, a pretty thin lifeline with the technology and young people are immersed in it and have done it their whole lives. This whole um, shelter in place and going to virtual meetings was a natural, um, uh, was kind of a natural space for older folks to relinquish power and control and say, we face a challenge that we don't fully know how to respond to. Help us apply the technology to reaching as many of the folks that we want to connect to, uh, helping us solve the problem of how are we going to deal with a, a grandma who used to come to all the meetings and can't come out and doesn't have a desktop, doesn't even have a smartphone and engaging young people who are facile with the technology and helping us to develop 
the technology platforms and tools that will help us engage all of the people that we want to in the process. And in far too many organizations, people who knew little or nothing about the technology had the power and decisions and a little reluctance because it's also a devolution of power and control. All of a sudden, you know, this 18 year old knows more about the substance of what we're doing than anybody else. So I think we've been reluctant to kind of, even where there's natural opportunities to build relationships with young people, let them exercise uh, control and power and help to shape things. We haven't done it uh, in ways that we easily could have. And we've even done it to our detriment. We don't know enough about just hearing Anna, you know, rattle off all of the different sort of things that are on the tip of her tongue around, uh, you know, technological responses to this stuff. That doesn't happen with a lot of people in my age cohort. I'm struggling. You know, I've never been on TikTok. It was enough for me to get an Instagram because <laughs> my grandchildren are, my son's pacing pictures on Instagram and I want to see my grandkids. That's how I got on Instagram. It wasn't I was floating. So I think it's important that we don't ignore opportunities where the balance of knowledge is clearly in favor of young people, whether it's about their experiences or about technology or about how and what they want to see in the future, that we kind of back off a little and say, Let, let's follow a little as a method of leading. I want to there's a, I want to pull back a point that Junius raised earlier about um, sort of what you're getting into and giving up. Um, you mentioned someone asked Abigail asked on the Q and A about you talked about mentioning compromising one's values as you get older and something that occurs at CI tables. Junius, um, she really wants to talk about sort of how do you how do you deal with that sort of as you're wrestling with with some of that in a way. And I think this is also a generational conversation. And we talked a little bit about this when we were planning for this, this idea, the sense of urgency, the sense of complacency that happens, um, do, do, are they inverted? Is there a sense of urgency that you feel more when you're younger, sort of fresh in the battle, and then you sort of feel like we've gotten this far, let's just sort of keep it going and, and try to not rock the boat potentially as you get older. So can we talk a little bit about how that shifts and how you sort of think about that as you're sitting at CI tables and are there roles, um, are there ways that we can sort of leverage each of those feelings um, in sort of responses in this kind of work? So for us, um, we have a saying in our organization is, I've already shared it with Sherry and Junius at one point, is do you wanna be right or do you wanna be effective? And that saying has gotten me into a lot of trouble um, <laughs> because sometimes we're just tired of being effective um, and we just wanna be right. And Junius was even bringing up this point at one meeting that we had where a lot of young folks are, are tired of, of, asking, of asking for permission um, and rather just asking for forgiveness. And um, for us, laying down your values, laying down um, what you believe in at, at CI tables is, is sometimes hard for us to do. Um, it takes me back to one of our CI efforts um, called Breaking the Chains, where um, I don't know if you all are familiar with this that had happened, um, the Stephon Clark shooting case that had happened in Sacramento um, a couple years back. We had a couple um, elected officials who were at the table. And me being the 22-year-old <laughs> youth member that I am at the table, it was a little difficult for me to be a little effective. 
And so I had to continuously um, tell myself in my head, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And um, that's a saying that we usually, we usually use in, in our organization. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, there is sort of a, a perverse dynamic uh, that goes on uh, here. And I'll, I'll speak uh, uh, of my own experience, but I think it's shared by uh, a lot of people. Um, the urgency for change when I was in the Black Action Movement in the 60s and the anti-war uh, demonstrations and all of the things, there was a sense of, of urgency and an existential nature of what was going on that caused us to really push and push. And I've noticed over uh, the years uh, almost an inverse relationship between the urgency uh, that I and others feel and the amount of power that we've accumulated. And uh, I, I, it's perverse in the sense that when you get some power and you get some status, becoming concerned about losing that and not as concerned uh, about moving the issue. And so, um, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have the intergenerational relationships and partnerships is that I need to be pushed. It's as simple as that, that I am more risk aversive at uh, this period in time than I've ever been. Um, and I need people to check me on my values. Um, as um, Anna was saying, I paraphrase it a little, do you want to move the agenda or do you want to, you know, retain your power? And so th that I think becomes a, a, a real problem. That's one of the reasons that uh, older folks should not overstay, uh, overstay their welcome in positions of power and authority is that there's a natural settling and there's a natural conservatism that begins to creep in that is probably antithetical to accomplishing what could be accomplished if uh, we older folks didn't become so risk aversive. Um, and let me say one other thing. We need the urgency now. I mean, and this is probably the best opportunity, certainly in my lifetime, we've had to move on some pretty fundamental issues uh, of race, but also of how we take care of people in the society in terms of universal health care and basic income. And it needs uh, a legion of warriors who are uncompromising about some of those basic things. And um, as much as I, I hate to say it, I'm willing to compromise in a way that probably I shouldn't, that somebody needs to jack me up. There needs to be a groundswell of the urgency that young people bring to these issues that overcomes my risk aversion at this because we're not gonna have, we may not have any opportunity for anything given the idiocy that's going on uh, in this nation and in its leadership, but we certainly aren't gonna accomplish the things that we could if we don't have the urgency and the push to say there are no excuses anymore for some of the conditions that we permit to obtain in the society that too many of us have been become comfortable with. I want to pull it on a power thread here. Um, we've had a couple of, of questions that have come in around 
um, sort of power and often it's older people who have more power, whether it's more at least traditional power, let's put it that way, to make creation, um, to create change, um, at least by changing structures because they're in positions of authority in, in government or wherever you might be wanting to change that, um, to make that change. So the question is sort of, how do you encourage those people to the table to sort of come to the table and work with basically humility and think about, um, you know, that they're gonna have to give up some of that power, at least share, or at least share their traditional power in a way, or use their traditional power to, to bring these issues forward and create, I would say, and create a space to bring some folks behind them, younger people, helping them figure out their leadership development tools. So what are some tools that you have for thinking about bringing those folks with power to the table and having that power conversation with them? And on the other side of that, what are some of the tools thinking about how we develop the leadership potential of young people to get them into, to, to sort of get them into more traditional places of power um, in the work we're doing? A couple of the, the examples that we've had in the past in terms of um, CI efforts where we've asked um, powerful players to be at the table, um, we go right into the relationship with power players of um, introducing um, the shared goals and the ground rules. We call them ground rules. Some of you might know them as community agreements, um, just going straight into this relationship based on whatever it is that the goals are, I feel like are the most important things to lay out when it comes to power sharing um, because it, it seems to have worked for us in the past. And just allowing those power sharers or powerful players to share their power in, in these CI efforts has been something that we've, we've struggled with in the past, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but just going into these relationships, knowing that we lay out the ground rules for them in the beginning um, and seeing how that plays out is something that we've done in the past. And Junius, before you answer, because I think it ties a little bit to your question of the risk averse, right? And how do you get those people to be less risk averse? And I think that sort of ties into this conversation as well. Yeah, uh, well, a couple of things. And I see in some of the chat and question comments, uh, some of the, some of the uh, ideas uh, that people are doing, all of which I think are good possibilities. People are talking about a junior steering committee or other groups that are specially uh, to kind of build them. I think those are great developmental activities if they're coupled with actually beginning to redesign the, the structure at the main leadership table. So it doesn't exclude that. Terry, you mentioned uh, the bench strength. You're, you're, you've got a system of building uh, the capabilities, the skills, the experiences of young people. Um, so that they not only serve on the steering body, but you've got mechanisms to develop uh, to develop those who may be a little younger or may not have the experience to successfully sit at the table. I think a second thing out of some of the work that we did over the years in um, urban strategy at Urban Strategies Council and other people know, engaging young people requires supporting young people to be there, especially um, if uh, uh, you haven't had uh, and they haven't had opportunities in a community to participate in a meaningful way in, in uh, decision-making groups. I think the challenge for many of us on an individual level, um, well, let me rephrase that. 
we also need to be challenged on an individual level about our behavior and whether or not, for example, uh, should it be a requirement that uh, a significant number of the uh, older folks at a table be required to mentor? And I'm not just talking about mentoring teenagers, I'm talking about mentoring 30 year olds. What are the mentoring kind of relationships? Because one of the things, and Anna alluded to this early, is building relationships that, you know, I may be a 65 year old white guy that my heart's in the right place and my values are, but I just haven't had the exposure. Well, what would it mean to, to have a mentoring relationship where you're both providing support uh, to somebody in their evolution and development, but you're also learning uh, a whole uh, um, different experience than what you've come from that only enhances your ability. And we're not thinking as deliberately uh, as we should be about what does the, the infrastructure look like for making sure that young people have an opportunity to develop their skills and then they've got a place to apply those skills in a legitimate and meaningful way. So I think there are ways of doing it, but I saw in the word cloud the intention coming up. It takes intentionality. I would go a step further though, just really quickly on, we don't do a power analysis with the older folks at the table. You know, and it's been one of my critiques of the uh, collective impact model in and of itself yeah. that, you know, this is about power. We're in these uh, situations mm -hmm. because we have a maldistribution of power in this society, which centralizes it in, in a few people. And... Um, <laughs> you know, do the power analysis, you know, how many residents intended beneficiaries of the initiatives that we're doing are sitting at the table? And, and what's our value around that? One might argue that maybe over half the people sitting at the decision-making table should be the people who are the intended beneficiaries and are going to have to live with whatever success or mischief we create in these, well, they damn well should be sitting at the table and should have some majority voice in it because they're gonna be in these neighborhoods and in these situations long after the funding is gone and I've gone off to be an independent consultant and all that kind of shit, people are gonna live there and the people need to have some say in what's going on. So it's not just an issue of young people, it's an issue of everybody who ain't in a power position uh, and what we're doing around really legitimately looking at power and creating in a collective uh, uh, impact steering committee or decision-making body, some redistribution uh, of the power. And I know the head of health and social services have a three quarter billion dollar budget but that should give him or her no additional power and authority at the tables we're creating than anyone else. But all of us know that's not the reality now. And it's probably part of the reason that we don't make more progress because we've got a new constellation in which we're doing the same traditional practices of power and decision-making that we always have. And it ain't gonna produce any different results than what they have historically, which has left us in the current situation. And I won't get into politics. I'll leave that alone, but. Thank you, Genius. Um, so 
that actually is um, is really, I think, a really important for us to think about too. Sort of um, one of the questions that actually came up this on response is um, sort of tools about power analysis. So I would love um, if folks would, people are interested in this idea of what kind of tools do you all use to do power analysis? So for us, um, when it comes to training, when it comes to any of the programs that we host at AES, um, we usually leave it up for the youth to speak first in any of the meetings, any of those programs that we host, um, we provide space and we open it up to our young folks to feel comfortable enough to share um, in their own skin. And we do that by, like I said, the community agreements and the ground rules that we have. We always start off every single program um, with those community agreements and with those ground rules, which we allow, we use it as a um, activity that we bring to the table for everyone to be a part of. Um, and oftentimes we found that this has worked for us um, in CI efforts all across the board. And that's pretty much what has worked for us. So one of the questions too that I think is, that relates to this a little bit is sort of, when we think about who deserves power, who deserves these positions of authority, right? We sort of, we, in theory, I'm gonna say in theory, cause if we look at, I won't get political here, but if we say in theory that it's sort of like, you know, they have to have squeaky clean, they, they're, you know, it's not thinking about the voice of sort of, you know, um, Joe regular, right? Speak, you know, whether they're past the rehab, if they're felons, they've got other kinds of things that are in their, in their past. So how do we think about changing the definition of what it means to be power in these places in, in um, power and what power looks like and to make change in communities. Because I do believe that um, if you don't have voice, a community voice at the table, that the solutions that you're creating are not going to be longstanding and they're not going to, to matter most to the people that they need to matter to, right? Like you're gonna do in the old days we used to call creaming, right? Um, so I think that it is important for us to think about sort of how do we change what power means um, and what sort of people identify who is right to have power? I guess eligibility at, at a collective impact table to be at a decision-making table, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure that, or how any of that experience, um, well, that's a, that's a, a tough one because um, I'm not sure that any of those things should be disqualifying factors. They should be eligibility factors. Um, and we sort of somehow inverted it. Um, and I know what that's about. It's about race and it's about social class and it's about uh, those ills within the society. But those are precisely the people that you do want. If, if I've got a felony record and I'm out and I'm wanting to sit at a table, like one of these and help my community, which a lot of formerly incarcerated and people with criminal histories want to do. They've kind of recognized how whatever the behavior was uh, um, has impacted the community and they typically want to give back. And those are precisely the people that you want to have at the table that we call kind of those with lived experience. I call potential beneficiaries, but people who know kind of uh, the dynamics of 
what's producing the problems we're trying to attack and have insights that many of us who haven't had that experience could never have. So I don't think there should be very many uh, disqualifying uh, eligibility factors for, for folks. So that, that's sort of a foreign notion to me. And I would want, in fact, those sort of people uh, to bring their knowledge, wisdom, and experience uh, 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 to the table. Um, with respect to the power analysis, uh, I don't use any really fancy tools. What are the major decisions that we're making at this table and who's making them? And looking at the composition of those groups, uh, again, um, you know, this is, is, this is not rocket science. This is pretty simple to say, looking around, what are the big ticket decisions that we make about money, about personnel, about strategy and intervention and those things and who's making them? Yeah. And what is the composition of the people are making them and how representative is that of who we are as a community and people in terms of race and ethnicity and gender preference and age and all of those characteristics is pretty easy. And it's a simple analysis because the pattern has been there for years. You know, when, when you look at it, all of us are aware of this. This is again an issue to me of will. We know that there's a centralization centralization of power and authority in many of these tables among white males and white women. Mm -hmm. And even more so white women, when you get down in a lot of communities to the working group, because they're doing a lot of the social work, they're frontline workers, the people you want to have at working group who know the ins and outs of what's happening on the ground. Uh, so uh, my reaction is uh, that we're playing a bit uh, uh, of uh, sticking our head in the sand game. We know exactly what's going on. We know it's too heavily concentrated by race and gender, and that we just need to intentionally decide that that's not going to be the case going forward, and that we're going to have representative bodies. And yeah, there's some pull and tug around figuring out what representative looks like, but uh, it's not beyond our ability to figure that out and then to apply, uh, to apply what we learn to how we make decisions and who we engage in decision making moving forward. And I'm going to ask you a, a couple of questions. One is um, sort of what is the best way that you sort of work to engage community um, and engage their trust, especially if you're working with a lot of historically disenfranchised communities? So going back to um, just what power means to us in our organization, we've kind of defined power as being, um, power is really being able to create your own reality. And no matter where we go, whether it's in the communities that we serve, um, in city council, in, at the board of education, wh wherever it is that we go, we create that reality for ourselves. And um, being able to build that trust with the communities that we serve really comes from um, the programs that we put out there and um, knowing that a lot of the students that we serve come from diverse backgrounds um, and being able to mentor those students out of whatever situation that they're facing has really been what has worked for us um, and pulling from the, our own communities and having the mentors being being those community members has really shown um, to be the most successful in terms of um, building that rapport with with our communities. 
a follow-up to that, Anna, is um, so they would love to hear someone asked if, um, how you guys approach collecting and internalizing feedback from stakeholders across generations. Yeah, so when it comes to, I can, I'm thinking about some of the um, collective impact efforts that we've had in the past, one of them being Pipeline Through College, which, as I mentioned in the beginning, is um, one of the efforts that we've had in the past that um, gets young people from marginalized communities to um, rather create their own reality and have that power within themselves um, to go to college if that's what they choose to do. And um, as I mentioned in the, in the beginning, um, I am a product of that program. And so I know when it, come, when it came to building that rapport and that relationship with the stakeholders at um, the post-secondary education um, places that we were having those relationships with, it took a lot of trust building. I'm not gonna lie, it did. And it took people going into conversations with an open mind and an open heart for us to accomplish our shared goals. And I feel like with everything that we do, not just that effort that we've had pipeline through college, it took us going into situations where we had to approach every conversation with an open-minded and open heart to be able to understand each other and to be able to accomplish the goals that we set out for each other. Thank you. One question that came in um, was for either of you or both of you, does trauma-informed work inform how you create healthy cross-generational communities? How do you guys build that into your work? Well, for us, for example, um, we, we serve in a lot of communities where trauma is very prevalent in a lot of our young people that we serve. And so um, when it comes to having those programs in those communities, a lot of times we find ourselves um, getting past the trauma first and um, having those difficult conversations with our young people first before we try to teach them about college or before we try to teach them about leadership or um, whatever the case may be. And so I feel like every time that we approach a situation with our young folks, knowing that they come from diverse backgrounds and knowing that they come from homes where a lot of trauma can, can occur, um, we enforce that in our programs first before being able to teach them um, whatever it is that we're teaching them. Junius, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, just to express um, a, a sense of, of need um, because we already, for many uh, low-income communities of color, uh, already had tremendous levels of trauma that we had trouble dealing with effectively. I step back and look at the pandemic and the economic crisis and uh, the uh, Black Lives uh, movement and what's happened to people who protested. The level of trauma within this society is off the scale. And I'm just admitting that I don't know what you do when this is not targeted, that we need uh, strategies and practices for trauma for damn near everybody uh, in the society right now. And that that is really a dangerous place to be because we have seen the impact of trauma on behavior in low income communities. And when we talk about everybody 
having pressures on that creates trauma, that to me, that's really frightening. And I'm not sure we're paying nearly enough attention societally that we've got a huge, uh, on top of our existing um, healthcare crisis in terms of just the, the physical side, the behavioral health side of this is exploding on us. So it's more of a plea that I don't know, but I think we're, I don't have specific strategies, but I think we're uh, underappreciating the extent and that when we start, when and if we start coming out of shelter in place and some of this stuff starts manifesting, I'm really concerned that we're not gonna be equipped to sort of manage the, the level of trauma and the resulting behaviors that manifest when we start socializing with, with one another again. A question has come up about risk and risk aversion. And the question was, how can organizations implement a risk assessment process that doesn't sort of inherently view change as a risk? So can, is there a way to define risk in a way that protects mission and community, but does not en enable them to hold onto their power status quo and avoid making necessary changes? I don't know about that. Anna may have some <laughs> insights. I don't know of that sort of organizational risk assessment tool that is that sophisticated uh, to address the dimensions that uh, the questioner posed. Uh, maybe some other folks do. I don't. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same boat as Junius. I don't have a um, complete answer, but I feel like with some of the things that we've done in the past, um, just being completely transparent about the goals that you have and the risk factors that may come about through the process of accomplishing those goals, um, I feel like for us has worked completely. Um, speaking from one of the examples that we've had in the past um, with our Stack Kids First Coalition that we've been a part of, um, sometimes through the process of being a part of that coalition, it was difficult to have certain relationships with certain stakeholders where they were for um, the police involvement with the shooting that I had mentioned in the past or in the beginning with Stefan Clark. And sometimes it was difficult for us to have um, certain conversations, but knowing that those risk factors are things that um, we had to bring up in the beginning was so very important before trying to accomplish any type of goal. As a closing, I'd like to ask both of you to respond to sort of what advice do you want folks to take away from this? Anna, as you, um, as you, someone who works a lot with um, young leaders and activists, what advice would you give to those of an older generation who are working with and wanting to engage young people? What advice would you give them? And June, as you can imagine that mine to you is gonna be the corollary of that. So um, Anna, why don't you start and then we'll go to Junius. Just kind of piggybacking off of everything that I've mentioned um, with all the little phrases and sayings that our organization pretty much runs off of, go into every situation with an open mind and an open heart because a lot of times you may not completely agree with everything that someone is saying and the morals and beliefs of whatever um, collective impact effort that you are a part of when you know that you can connect with someone heart to heart, knowing that you have that relationship with them, there's such a huge power in that. And I feel like that's what's missing in this world is having that relationship and um, reflecting back on how you're able to connect with people heart to heart is something that we are so very prevalent on and um, we practice heavy in our organization. Um, 
doing that in whatever collective impact that you have is, I feel like, the most important thing. Um, and remembering that it's not about the hard work, it's about the hard work. Um, and no matter how difficult it may get throughout all the obstacles you can face that we can all think of in collective impact efforts, um, knowing when you have certain relationships with folks that you are at the table with, that's all that matters, is getting those relationships down and knowing that it isn't about the hard, it isn't about the hard work, it's about the hard work. And Junius, what would you say to young leaders about gauging and getting more seasoned people to be, to think about how they're engaging with them? I'm going to not do what I've been asked. I, I want to talk to older <laughs> folk. Uh, Go young for it. people will take care of their business. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. This is both on the collective impact level, but the, the broader societal level, because I think right now the two are intertwined. I would find it hard to do effective collective impact work right now without dealing with the issues that are plaguing us almost literally in terms of the pandemic, race, uh, uh, economic uh, issues is that this is the, the best opportunity that we've had and the most support around these issues that we've had in my lifetime. And older folks should not blow it. Uh, we should not blow it in the sense that we need to follow and not lead. Our days of, of leadership, we should offer advice, wisdom, and experience and get the hell out of the way and let the people who are gonna do the, the real work do the work. And part of the work right now requires some ass kicking. It's as simple as that. The experience of the pandemic for me was to reinforce in my mind that America can do whatever America wants to do. We changed the whole damn economy overnight. We took trillions of dollars out of the budget. We changed procedure, we changed policy, we changed structure. We can turn on a dime. For 40 years, people have been arguing to me that we can't turn on a dime. And lo and behold, I see this circumstance and we turned on a dime. There are no more excuses. And we need to support young people. We need to share our wisdom. We need to say, oh, we tried that shit once and it didn't work. You may not want to go there, but leaving to young people the decision. The fact that we have left them with this set of circumstances disqualifies us to be in a leadership position about this. I mean, look at where we are. It's all my generation and we did a lot of good things. I think about the war effort and civil rights and I think about the women's movement. A lot of good work was done, but somehow it led to the result that we're all living with right now. So I think we're a little bit disqualified and we need to kind of turn around and be supportive, go to demonstrations, do stuff, but not think that we're gonna lead uh, the nation and our people out of this because uh, we're not. Young people are gonna do that or it ain't gonna happen and we're running out of time. So thank you. And I just wanna say, this is why Junius is my favorite person to partner with. I just love it. And every day that I get older and get closer and closer to being Junius to be able to say what I want is what I'm living for. So um, thank you both of you for taking the time to do this. This was great. I'm looking, people have been appreciative in the comments. I just wanna say thank you so much. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed, 
We've included information in the footnotes for this episode. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And for those interested in our next online learning event, please save the date for April 27th through 29th, 2021 for our 2021 Fieldwide Virtual Collective Impact Convening. Registration will open later this fall. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.